Thank you, Heavenly Father, that you are a God who speaks to us. Thank you that you have not hidden yourself away, but in Jesus you have revealed yourself to us. And we ask that you would speak to us this morning about him. Show us him again, we pray, in a way that touches our hearts and changes our lives. We are weak. I am a weak speaker. These are weak listeners. We are distracted. We are sinful. But you are able to overcome all of those things and speak your powerful word into our hearts. And we pray that you would do that this morning. For Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, we're starting a new series uh, today. Um, Elijah has, has handed on the baton. Uh, and our new series is in John's Gospel, chapters 13 through 17. And in a sense, what we're looking at here is Jesus' last words. Now, last words can be very significant. Particularly if somebody knows, somebody knows that the end is approaching and they have limited time, then they're going to say and do the things that are most important to them. They're going to say and do the things that will really communicate what is on their hearts, what matters. And that is the case in these chapters. We are, we are privy here to Jesus' last intimate but urgent conversations with his disciples. It is just them there. And Jesus wants to tell them just the few short things that he has time for. The things that it will be most important for them to know and understand. See, the, uh, the setting here is that Jesus is leaving. Jesus is leaving. He knew that the hour had come for him to leave the world and go to the Father. Now, if we had read through uh, the whole of John's Gospel this morning, um, it would be closer to lunchtime. But also we would have noticed that John insists very, very firmly that if you want to see God, if you want to be near to God, the only way that will happen is in the presence of Jesus. Way back at the beginning of his gospel, he says, no one has ever seen God. But God, the one and only, Jesus Christ, has made him known. Well, that's great for the disciples when Jesus is with them. You want to know God? Here is Jesus. But Jesus is leaving. So for the disciples in the story, that raises the question, how will we go on? If Jesus is the only access to God, if living as a Christian is only possible because of Jesus, how are we going to go on if Jesus is going away? And of course, for John's original readers, and for us as well, the question is even more stark. We've never been in the physical presence of Jesus. We've never looked into his face, the face where John says we see God. How can we even be Christians, let alone thrive and grow as Christians? How is it possible for us 
to belong to this Jesus whom we've never seen and to grow up in him? Well, I want to suggest that that is the question which these chapters aim to address. And they come at it from lots of different directions. And so as the weeks go by, we're going to build up a picture of what it means to live as a Christian, to grow as a Christian, to be a follower of Jesus when Jesus is not here physically. And chapter 13 jumps straight in to that. The setting is hugely significant. It is just before Passover. The Passover feast is big in John's Gospel. In fact, as you read through it, you'll realize that it is almost always just before Passover in John. Because unlike the other Gospels, most of the action in John is centered around Jerusalem, around the Jewish festivals. And the Passover is hugely significant because the Passover is the time when the Jewish people sacrifice a lamb to celebrate their deliverance from Egypt and their redemption from slavery. And right back at the beginning of the Gospel, John has recorded the words of another John, John the Baptist, who as he sees Jesus coming says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And so when it's Passover, when imagery of lambs is, is all around, lambs who are to be sacrificed, there's a sense of foreboding in these little words. It was just before the Passover feast. Not only was it just before Passover, it was Jesus' hour. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave and to go to his father. Now throughout John, Jesus' hour has not come. Back at Cana, his hour had not come when his mother asked him to perform a miracle. In, in chapters 7 and 8, when they try to lay hands on Jesus as he teaches in the temple and to do away with him, they're unable to do so because his hour has not yet come. It's not yet time for that. But in chapter 12, verse 23, we finally see that the hour has come. And it's repeated at the beginning of chapter 13. The hour has come. Everything has been building to this point. But what sort of hour will it be? The hour of Jesus' departure? The hour in chapter 12 when Jesus will be glorified? But remember back to chapter 7 and 8. They couldn't kill him then because his hour had not yet come. But what about now? Now that his hour has come. Again, deep foreboding. And to make it really pointed, even as they sit down to dinner, the devil has already prompted Judas Iscariot to betray him. So as we look in on this intimate gathering of Jesus' closest friends and followers, already evil is at work in that room. Already one of them has laid plans to betray Jesus to his enemies.
it's tense. It is tense as we zoom in on the disciples gathering to eat their evening meal. And in the midst of all that, we have Jesus. Verse 2. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. In the midst of all of that tension, foreboding, Jesus knows what is going to happen. He knows better than Judas what is going to happen. And he knows something of the enormity of it, his betrayal and death. And yet his focus is on love for his disciples. He loved them to the end, to the very end of his life, perhaps, or it could also mean to the uttermost, to, to the end of his reserves of love. He showed them all of his love at this time. So what I want to ask this morning is this. What does it look like for Jesus, knowing that his betrayer is sitting at table with him, knowing that the end is soon coming, what does it look like for him to love his disciples and to love them to the very end, to love them with all of the reservoirs of love in his heart? What does it look like? Well, for starters, it looks like action. We um, talk about love quite a lot in our society, I think, and in our culture. And more often than not, um, it's a very intangible thing, love. Um, it sort of floats around. We've, we, we fall into it. We fall out of it uh, as if it were some sort of big puddle. Um, but Jesus' love results in action. Let me just read it to you because I think this is striking. From verse 2. The evening meal was in progress. And the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. Jesus knew. He knew that he had all divine power in this situation. His heavenly Father has entrusted to him all of creation. He has all power. Moreover, he knows where he came from. His eternal past is with his heavenly Father. And he knows where he is going, back to God, to be received in glory. He knows all of this. As he sits there, in the middle of this situation, which seems so tense and so dark, Jesus knows that he has all the power. He has all the knowledge. Whatever Judas thinks he can do, Jesus knows and he has all the power. Whatever Satan hopes to achieve, Jesus knows and he has all the power. And with all that power and all that knowledge, the very power and knowledge of God, how does Jesus show love to his disciples? So he got up from the meal took off his outer clothing and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around them. 
See how John gives that description, step by step. I think he does it step by step because can you not imagine the disciples sitting there? He's getting up. Why is he, why is he taking off his, his robe? What is he doing with that towel? He's getting the water ready. He's kneeling down. You can, there's, there's just tangible disbelief, isn't there? Jesus has all the power of God. And he uses it to take off his robe, wrap a towel around him, and wash his disciples' feet. It's what Jesus' love looks like. It's what God's love looks like. Now this is a, a hugely and deeply humble thing to do. Now, just um, obviously, I imagine, you would have a natural aversion to washing lots of people's feet. Um, the thought doesn't appeal to me particularly. But in, in this society, this was the job for the lowliest of the low, for the slave, for the slave who couldn't really be trusted to do anything else. A Jew was forbidden to give this job to a Jewish slave because it was too demeaning. It's not a nice thing to do. And I, I can't help feeling it's also not exactly necessary. Now, etiquette did dictate that when people came to a feast, their feet should be washed as they came in because nobody likes to have dirty feet when they're sitting down to dinner. But the meal's already started. The disciples are already reclining at table. I don't get the impression that they're too bothered about their dusty feet. Perhaps for a fisherman in Galilee, it's not too much of a big deal. I don't think this is an essential service that Jesus is performing for them. It's just the superfluity of his love. He will wash their feet. This action is, is significant just because of its very insignificance. In the grand scheme of things, what does it matter if the disciples have dirty feet? Particularly if the grand scheme of things includes your coming betrayal and the end of your life. Well, maybe Jesus doesn't always think as we do about practicalities and the grand scheme of things. But he loved his disciples and he showed them his love to the uttermost, to the end, by emptying himself of all his glory and kneeling down. Of course, this act of service of Christ looks forward to his cross of which more later. But Jesus' love is not only in the big world-saving sacrifice, but because it is there in that awesome deed of self-emptying and sacrifice, it's also here around the table with the towel and the wash basin. I wonder if sometimes... Um, our view of God's love in Christ is, is, is so great, so exalted, that it doesn't really come into contact with our everyday lives. Like, God's love is so pure that he must just care about dealing with the massive problems of sin and death 
and my day-to-day -day struggles are of no particular interest. That won't fit with the picture of Jesus we're given here. The one who is willing to go to the cross is also willing to stoop down and wash feet. And again, understand, this is not Jesus saying, well, just on this one occasion I won't behave like God. Although I have all the power and authority of God, on this one occasion I won't behave like God, I'll stoop down and wash feet. That's not what's happening here. It doesn't say Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and yet nevertheless he got up from table. It says he knew that he had all the power. He knew he was God. He knew where he came from and where he was going. And so he got up to serve because this is what our God is like. He is not a prisoner of his own glory. He is a God who loves who loves, whose love overflows into foot washing. A God who loves extravagantly. What a saviour. What a Lord. What a God who would kneel and wash the dirt off people's feet. What a God. Judas the betrayer is sitting at that table. But it isn't from Judas that we hear any objection. It's from Simon Peter, the loyal chief of the band of disciples. Simon Peter in this chapter is a, a wonderful and, and maddening mix of headstrong pride and humility and love for Jesus and love for self, all, all wrapped up in a confusing bundle. Lord, are you going to wash my feet? No, no, Lord. No, Lord. No, you shall never wash my feet. Never. You're too good to wash my feet. I won't let you do it. I, I know how lowly I am and how great you are. I will not let you come anywhere near my feet. See the weird mix of humility and pride? Peter knows he's not worthy of this. But he also knows that he knows better than Jesus about what Jesus ought to be doing. Unless I wash you, Peter, you have no part in me. Some penny drops of Peter. Well, they're not just the feet. All of me. Just tip the bowl. You can't fault him for enthusiasm. Jesus answered, Those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean. And you are clean, although not every one of you. You see, this physical foot washing is in itself an extravagant sign of love, but it is also a sign of something more. The disciples need to be spiritually cleansed. 
And that need is far more urgent than their need to get dust from between their toes. Now, Jesus knows, looking forward to the cross, that he will wash these disciples. And so he says, you are clean. Because you have followed me, you have trusted in me. All of the muck of your sin is washed away. It's as if you've been in the bath. But I think it's instructive. Even the clean need their feet washing. Because even those of us who know that we are forgiven, who know that in Christ we stand clean before God, still on a day-by-day and week-by-week basis pick up dirt. There is the sin of this morning and yesterday that still clings to us. Ah, yes, you're clean. But you've been walking through dirty places. And you've failed. And you've made mistakes. And whether through negligence or weakness or, or your own deliberate fault, there's muck on your feet. You're still bathed, you're still clean. But Jesus says, I'll get that off for you as well. I'll get that off for you as well. Imagine it like this. Suppose you've been invited to a banquet. You've been invited to a banquet. I don't know if that happens to you ever. It never happens to me. If anybody's having a banquet, I'd love to come. Uh, Before you set out, you have a bath. You have a bath. Because nobody likes to smell at a banquet. But as you head off, and you're wearing sandals, and you're not wearing socks, which baffles me, uh, as you head off in your sandals, you have to walk along an unmade road. It's just a dirt track, really. And actually it's worse than that, because as you're walking along, you realize that the reason this unmade road looks so pitted and bumpy is because somebody's been driving cattle through here. And there's stuff that isn't quite mud. By the time you pick your way to the banquet, from your ankles up, you're clean. It's great. But you've picked up a lot of muck. Well, that is us, if we are Christians today. We've been washed. Think back, perhaps, to your baptism. We've been made clean by faith in Jesus. And we're headed towards the heavenly banquet that we read of at the end of Scripture. But on the way, we walk through this world which is full of dirt. And day by day, we will need to turn to Jesus and say, wash my feet. And he does. Because having done the far greater thing, to wash us, which cost him his blood, his love, his love which goes to the end, will also deal with those little stains. Just a, a lesson from this, or a couple maybe. One is, 
There's no hard and fast line between what we might call practical service and spiritual service. And actually, when we try to draw that line, I think that's often a sign that we've got things quite radically wrong. When we, as Christians, try to practically serve one another, we want to be doing so in a way that also says, you are part of the body, receive the gospel. You have been brought into Jesus and received forgiveness in him. Receive the love of Christ in this action. Similarly, it wouldn't hurt us to deliver some of our spiritual support alongside some practical help. Another thing, unlike Peter, we need to be willing to receive both practical and spiritual help. How hard it is to be a recipient. Everything rails against it. But we shouldn't decide for Jesus what it is appropriate for him to do. He wants to give us grace and forgiveness. And we must receive it. As an aside, can I just put out there, we need to be willing to receive both. I don't know how easy you find it to receive practical assistance when people come and offer you help. Or when you need help but nobody yet knows it. Do you go out and ask for help? When somebody offers to help, I know that my immediate reaction is, it'll be fine, we'll be fine, thank you. I worry that that unwillingness to receive practical help is a sign of pride that will also prevent me from receiving spiritual help when it is offered. Nothing defines a Christian more than being one in need of help. Love is explained. And here is love as our example. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. If you call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am, now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I've set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you'll be blessed if you do them. There's a simple incongruity between saying to somebody, you are my teacher, you are my Lord, but I'm going to do something completely different from what you have done. That immediately says, I say that you have authority, but in practice, I deny it. Jesus says, I, your master, your Lord, your teacher, have knelt down and washed your feet. Now, if you are my followers, you will do the same for one another. It would be worth our while to explore what that might mean for us as a church community. I quite strongly suspect that it will not mean a bout of foot washing, um, although your feet are particularly dirty, maybe. That's not necessarily what Jesus is saying here. He is saying, I have served 
you. I've served you even though I was your Lord. Now you must serve one another. You must not be proud. Because think about it. Whatever distinctions there might be amongst Christians, however they might place themselves on some imaginary scale of, of esteem, none of those gaps are anything compared to the infinite gap between the best Christian and our Lord and Master. But he closed the gap downwards, and indeed he, he undercuts us to wash our feet. So what can we hold back from one another in loving service? What can we hold back? He held back nothing. He loved them to the end. I know that there are people in this church who need help. I would hazard a guess that there are no people in this church who do not need help in one way or another. The love of Christ shown to us drives us out to show love to one another. A couple of things. What is your need? What is your need? Is it somebody to come and cook a couple of hot meals? Is it somebody just to come and tell you Jesus died for you. You're forgiven. Is it somebody to pray with you? Whatever it is, does anybody know? Does anybody know what you need? Maybe mention it to someone. We want to be a community of helpless people who help one another because of the love of Jesus. Now we are a community of helpless people, whether we like it or not. So let's not miss the second bit, because that would be miserable. This is the first way that John tells us that we can be Christians and thrive as Christians in the physical absence of Jesus. We can give and receive loving, humble service we can be at each other's beck and call. We can be those who encourage one another with acts of practical service and encourage one another with the gospel. Encourage one another by saying, Jesus loves you and your sins of yesterday are covered over as you confess them to him. Do you know how much we need to hear that on a day-by-day -day basis? That our sin is dealt with that our feet are washed. And we can be those who do that for one another. On behalf of Jesus, in his name, as his followers. In a minute we're going to come to take communion. To take bread and wine. Now the foot washing looked forward to the cross. The power of the foot washing was in the amazing love of Christ demonstrated at the cross. It was because he was going to give his body and blood to wash people free of their sin that this sign meant anything at all. 
And when we take the Lord's Supper, we look back in the other direction, to the same cross. This is just bread and wine. To be honest, we're on gluten-free bread and dubious wine, so it's not even that, really. But it is, it is for us a sign. A sign that not only in the wonderful, amazing, utter self-giving of the cross, but even in the week-by-week dispensation of the reminders of the gospel, Jesus loves us. Here is his love. The love of the one who would kneel behind his disciples and wash their feet and dry them with a towel wrapped around his waist. So as we come and as we approach this table, we remember him. We look to him. And we receive his great love. He loved his own who were in the world. He loved them to the end, to the uttermost of his heart's reserves of love. And now that love is extended to us who gather around his table. Praise the Lord. Amen.